Hey, it is great to see. It's great to have you here at the Medina East Campus this morning. If you are a guest with us, like Sarah Beth mentioned just a moment ago, we want to extend a very, very special welcome to you. Thanks so much for being our guest, and we're glad to have you here. My name's Tony, one of the pastors on staff here at Grace, and so if we've, ever, if we've never had a chance to meet each other, uh, I'd actually love to fix that. And so uh, after the service, I'm going to be hanging out in the cafe. Uh, please grab me, stop me, tell me your story if you have time. I, I always love to kind of hear how people got connected here at Grace, and so I'd love to do that. So please uh, do that if you would. But if you are a guest with us today, or if maybe you haven't been here in a while, you're actually joining us in the midst of a series that we've been in for the past several weeks that we've been calling Jesus Come and See. And basically, the whole goal of this series, the way we've been saying it, is we said the goal is to exchange our hand-me-down version of Jesus with a first-hand encounter with Jesus. And here's what we meant by that. What we said is, we said that everyone in our society, every single one of us, that our initial perception of Jesus is usually one that is handed to us from another person. And so, for example, we said maybe for you, you kind of grew up and your understanding of Jesus was first handed down to you from your parents. And so you kind of have a hand-me-down version. And we said maybe for you, it was the religious tradition that you grew up in, that your understanding of who Jesus is, is painted by that presentation. Or maybe you didn't grow up in the church. Maybe for you, your understanding of Jesus, your perception of Jesus was handed down to you from the media. And here's what we said. We said for better or for worse... All of us start there with a hand-me-down version of Jesus. But even though we start there, we said we can't stop there. That there is a need for us to come and see Jesus. That there is a time when we need to come and see him for ourselves. Come and look at what he actually said. To come look at his life and what he actually did. To, to not just base it off of what someone else has told us, but to actually kind of really let Jesus be Jesus and think about him in those terms. That's what we've been doing in this series. And uh, you can kind of think of it this way. One of the ways we've been describing this series, we said the series is like an invitation into an investigation. And so it's an invitation to every Everyone, uh, regardless of where you might be in your faith journey. We know some of you follow Jesus. We know uh, some of you do not. And this is an invitation to you, regardless of where you are, to come and see Jesus for yourself. And so the way we've been doing this investigation been journeying through the gospel of Matthew. And the reason we've been doing that, we said the gospel of Matthew is actually one of the earliest first century eyewitness accounts that we have into the life of Jesus. And so Matthew was a guy who would have known Jesus. He would have uh, observed Jesus's teaching and his life, and he would have recorded those things for us. And so my hope is, my hope is that up to this point, the series has been eye-opening for you. My hope is that it maybe has challenged some of your you know, misconceptions about who Jesus is or some of your preconceived notions of who Jesus is. I can just tell you personally, this series has been so challenging and exciting for me too. And I just I say that, man, every time I go back, every time I go back to the teachings of Jesus and to the life of Jesus, there's always something I didn't see before. And, uh, and it always challenges my preconceived notions about who he is. So awesome stuff. If you, if you missed any of the previous talks in the series, by the way, and you'd like to catch up, you can do that. Uh, we have an app, a podcast, a website. All of those things are for free. And uh, you can catch up in those platforms as well. But today, today, as we continue this investigation, we are going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 20. And so I want to encourage you, if you would grab your Bible, and if you would open it, I want to invite you, if you would please, uh, grab those and get to Matthew 20. That's where we're going to be spending our time today as we kind of pick it up as we journey through the Gospel of Matthew. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, page 689 in those black Bibles that are under the chairs is where you're going to find Matthew chapter 20. So feel free to use one of our Bibles 
Bibles. And then if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take one of ours. We would we'd love it if you, if you had a Bible. So Matthew 20 is where we're going to go. Now, as you're locating Matthew 20 and before we read the passage, I thought maybe kind of a fun way to uh, whet our appetite for the topic that we're going, to, we're going to see here in this passage would be to ask you a couple of questions. Okay, so I want to ask you a couple of questions, and I actually want to ask if you'd participate a little bit. And so here's what I want to ask you to do. I actually want you to write down your response, okay? So, so if you can, grab a pen or, you know, something like that. Or if you don't, you know, if you don't have a piece of paper, use your phone. So close out Netflix, um, open up your notes app, and you can type it out. But I want you to actually participate by writing it down, okay? So is everyone ready to do that? Does everyone have something in front of you you can write it down? Affirmative, affirmative, affirmative. Anybody? Bueller. Okay, good. All right, so here we go. Here is the first question. You ready for it? It's this. When you think of greatness, greatness, who is the first person who first comes to your mind? Okay, so I want you to write that down. So when, I, when you think of the idea of someone who possesses greatness in our society, who comes to your mind? Who's the first person that comes to your mind? I want you to write that down. Okay, so when I say a great one, that person is a great one, like one of the greats who, who comes to your mind. Now, let me clarify, by the way, that the question I'm asking is who first comes to your mind? Okay, so I'm not, I know what some of you are doing. You're like, what would be the right answer, right? So don't write down Jesus, all right? We all, okay, I know we're in church. Jesus is always the right answer. You can't use Jesus, okay? So, so besides Jesus, who is someone when you think of greatness, all right? Okay, question number one, you got something? Question number two, number two. When you think of greatness for God, so someone who is used greatly by God, who first comes to your mind? So who is someone that comes to your mind when you think, man, that greatly used by God? Here's the person that comes to my mind. Write it down, write it down. And again, you can't say Jesus. Um, I mean, he, he obviously was, but you know, can't say him. So, so there you go, greatness, greatness for God. Okay, so you guys all got something? All right, so here's what I want you to do. I actually want you to show your response to someone next to you. Just show it to them, show them what you wrote. This is an embarrassing moment if you wrote yourself. <laughs> which I know some of you did. So what'd you write down? What'd you write down? It's interesting, right? Hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating. I can, I can actually hear some of your responses. So here's, here's, here's the next thing I want to ask you. Just think about this with me for a minute. Why, why did you write those names down? So here's what I just want you to think about for a minute. What, what are the characteristics or what are the attributes or what are the common features that, that you tend to think of when you think of someone who is great? What qualifies someone for greatness? In other words, when you think about this idea of greatness, what, why did you write that person? Why did you think about them? Is it because, is it because of their great ability? Uh, they, they, their superlativeness in their talent or their skill. I heard LeBron James from a few of you. Maybe you wrote that down. When you think of greatness, did you, did you think of their great influence, uh, their great uh, ability or influence, or their, or their great impact in the world? Basically, what, what are the ingredients in your mind that qualify somebody for greatness? And, and the reason I think it's such a relevant question is because today... I think what we're going to come and see is we are going to see Jesus's definition of what true greatness is. We're basically going to see Jesus saying, here, here is who he says is great. So we're going to see this together in this passage here in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus defining 
greatness. So let's start. We're actually going to start off in verse 17. And so here we go. The Bible says, now Jesus was going to go up to Jerusalem. And on the way, he took the 12, his 12 disciples, he took them aside. And he said to them, verse 18, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. All right, so, so let me just kind of pause here for a minute, give you some context. So what's going on so far in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus has been doing his ministry now for several years, probably two and a half, maybe three years. He's been doing his ministry, traveling around with his disciples. And the Bible tells us that now he's headed to Jerusalem, and this is actually going to be the end of his ministry. And so he takes his disciples to the side, and basically he says, you guys, we're going up to Jerusalem. And he says, and this is it. This is our last trip. This is our last ride together. And Jesus tells them, here's what's going to happen. When we get to Jerusalem, I'm just going to tell you what's going to happen. He says, we're going to Jerusalem. This is our last trip together. He says, and when we get there, the Son of Man, that was a, a way that Jesus referred to himself. He said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. So Jesus says, guys, come over here. We're headed to Jerusalem. This is our last trip together. This is our last ride. Because when we get to Jerusalem, what's going to happen is I'm going to get handed over to the religious leaders, to the teachers of the law. Now, now look at this, verse 18. He said, and they're going to condemn the Son of Man to death, and they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. He's going to be mocked, flogged, crucified. And then he says, but on the third day, he's going to rise, raise to life. And so Jesus basically says to these guys, here's what's going to happen. It's our last trip going to Jerusalem. I'm going to get arrested, handed over. I'm going to get condemned to death. I'm going to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. But then on the third day, I'm going to raise from the dead. Now, here's something I think is interesting. This is actually the third time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus predicts with this amount of specificity exactly what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And so he says, I'm going to go down. I'm going to get beaten, flogged, mocked, crucified. But on the third day, I'm going to raise from the dead. And so Jesus tells this to his disciples. Now, after saying this, after saying this about what's going to happen to him, I want you to notice what happens next. Look at, verse, look at verse 20. Then, so right after Jesus predicts his own death, I'm going to die for the sins of humanity. I'm going to get mocked and beaten and all that kind of stuff. Very next verse. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, she asked a favor of him. Okay. So the Bible says now this woman comes up, and the Bible identifies her as the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this woman. We actually know quite a bit about her. Uh, she is mentioned in all, all four of the Gospels, and basically, here's what we know. Her name uh, would have been Salome or Salome, depending on how you pronounce it, and she actually was, uh, was someone who is, who is pretty involved in Jesus's ministry. She was, she was actually one of Jesus's disciples. And so she would have been a person um, who was actually at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified, right alongside Mary, the mother of Jesus. What's really interesting about this woman is that uh, most commentators agree that there's good indication in the gospel of John that this woman, this Salome or this Salome, that she was probably the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So let me just ask you a question. Just do a little relational math with me for a minute. If she was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who does this make her to Jesus? Right, this, would have been her, this would have most likely been Jesus' aunt. And so the Bible says that she comes up, and she comes up with her two sons. Now, who were her two sons? Well, the Bible says they were the sons of Zebedee. And some of you might know, uh, that's actually what that's referring to, those, the sons of Zebedee are referring to two boys, uh, James and John. 
So James and John actually would have been Jesus's, some of Jesus's closest disciples. Fast fact, fun fact about them. Jesus actually gave them a nickname, James and John. He gave them a really cool nickname. Does anyone in the room happen to know the nickname Jesus gave them? Shout it out, what was it? Yeah, yeah, the sons of thunder. How cool is that? Does it not sound like a biker gang? Like the sons of thunder. So Jesus in Mark chapter three gave James and John this nickname, sons of thunder, because apparently there were some pretty fiery guys. So they had a temper, they were brash, they were bold, they were forthright. And so here, here comes the sons of thunder along, along with their mom. And uh, the Bible says that they came to ask Jesus a favor. And so look what Jesus says in verse 21. Jesus said, what is it that you want? What is it that you're asking? And so she goes on. Look at verse 22. She said, grant, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other one at your left in your kingdom. All right, so she comes up to Jesus. Can, can you do me a favor? She says, what is it that you're asking for? She says, would you grant that my sons could sit? When, when, you're, when, you're, when you're in your kingdom, when you're sitting on your throne, let my boys, let them sit at the right and at the left. Grant that that might happen. It's actually kind of interesting. The word grant, some of you have different translations, and it might say, say, say it, Jesus. And actually, that's a, that's a pretty good translation because in the original Greek language, the word means say it. So, so you see what's going on, right? She comes up and she says, Jesus, can I ask a favor? He says, what is it? She says, say it. Say that my boys can sit at the right and the left when they get in your kingdom. See, because here's what she knows. She knows that when Jesus says something, it's gonna happen. And when Jesus says things, he's gonna follow through with what he says. So, so she says, Jesus, just say it. Because I know if you say it, that it's gonna happen. Let my son sit at the right, at the left. In other words, she says, Jesus, you say it. You say it because when, when you get in your kingdom, I don't want my boys standing in your kingdom. I don't want my boys serving in your kingdom. I want them sitting in the best seats, the right and the left. So Jesus, you say it. And all of a sudden you realize, my goodness, this woman's got some moxie, doesn't she? And all of a sudden you realize why these boys are called the sons of thunder. It's because their mama is the storm, right? This is mama thunder right here. And by the way, some, some of you are coaches or your teachers, and you, you know this parent, don't you? You know Mama Thunder. You've met her before. And, uh, and so she comes up, and she's like, man, Jesus, just say that it'll happen. And I just want you to observe with me for a moment. This, this request that she makes, that these boys and that, that their mom makes, this is a really lame request. This is really lame. On a lot of different levels, this is really lame. The first off, one of the reasons this is so lame is, I mean, just think about the context. What did, what did Jesus just say? He just said, you guys, this is, this is like, like going to be my darkest hour. I'm, I'm going down to Jerusalem, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get handed over, and I'm going to get beaten and flogged and mocked and crucified. And, and all of a sudden, they come in, and they're like, oh, okay, sorry about the whole flogging and mocking thing, but what about, uh, like, can, can we have the, the best, I'm just so dismissive, so insensitive to what Jesus must be going through. They're just thinking about themselves, because look at the request. The request is, let us sit at the right and the left. Now, this, by the way, uh, I don't know if, if, if you know this, but those two positions, the right and the left, back in this time, were representative of power. They were representative of authority. Basically, it would have been like saying, Jesus, make us prime ministers, right? When you become king, let us be the top-ranking you know, positions in your cabinet. That's basically what they're asking. 
So they're, they're completely consumed with themselves. They're not thinking about Jesus at all. And the other reason this request is so lame, do you notice this? James and John get their mom involved. How lame is that? How lame is it when the sons of thunder are like, mom, mom, can you, help, can you tell Jesus Mom, tell Jesus we want to be the best. She's like, okay, you know? And they go over. I mean, that's so lame. How lame? How lame is that? All God's people said. Lame. Lame. It's lame. And so, so look at Jesus. I love Jesus' response, but look how, look how patient. Look at, look, at how, look at how kind Jesus is. Jesus says, you don't, you don't know what you're asking. And I mean, I mean, it'd be so easy for Jesus just to be like, uh, excuse me. Let's try this again. Uh, but he doesn't. He says, um, you have no idea what you're asking. You don't know the ant thunder. <laughs> you don't know the magnitude of what you're asking right now. And then he goes on and he says, he says, can you drink the cup? Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And uh, some of you might be confused by that. What's the whole cup business about? Well, let me help you out here. The term cup, to drink a cup, it's actually a symbolic word that's used all throughout the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament. And it usually is a symbolic term that refers to suffering. So you might remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died, what was his prayer? He said, Father, take this cup from me, if there's any way. What was he referring to? He was referring to the cup of suffering that he was to endure for the sins of humanity. And so here he says to these guys, he says, you want to sit in those positions, but you don't know what you're asking for. Can you endure the suffering for the sake of others the way that I am going to endure suffering for the sake of others? And, and, and watch their response. Look at this. We can, they answered. Yep, we could do that. The whole cup thing, we don't even know what you're talking about. But yeah, like if that's what it takes to get in the right. And I'm just telling you, man, this right here, this is an outrageous assertion that these guys make. They don't know what Jesus is talking about, but they're like, cup, there's a cup in, sure. Yeah, whatever, fine, we could do that. Check, check on the cup thing, we got that. And I'm just telling you, man, that's just so outrageous. It actually reminds me, reminds me a lot of myself sometimes, or maybe some of you can relate to this. How many of you, I find myself doing this, whenever it's time for a software upgrade or something like that, you know how it gives you that thing and it says, I have read and agreed to the terms of service. And he, how, many, how many of you never read that? How many, okay, yeah, me neither. And I'm just like, agree, I read it. I could be signing my life away, right? I could be signing up for a Kenny G fan club, which would be worse. <laughs> Then signing my life away. I could be doing that. I was like, yeah. And that's what they do. He's like, can you drink the cup? They're like, agree, cup, it's fine. And <laughs> look at Jesus' response. Jesus says, um, well, uh, you will <laughs> actually indeed drink from my cup. And uh, my guess is Jesus probably saw the deep irony of what these guys just said. Uh, Jesus, who knew it was going to happen after his death, after his burial, after his resurrection, he actually knew James, some of you might know this, James indeed suffered greatly for the name of Christ. James was the first of the 12 disciples uh, who died a martyr's death. He was beheaded at the hands of Herod for, denounce, for not denouncing the name of Jesus Christ. And so he did drink the cup. John, uh, John suffered greatly for the name of Jesus, endured incredible persecution, eventually was exiled to the island of Patmos. He eventually died there. Many people believe that he also died a martyr's death, though we can't prove that historically. Either way, both of these guys, Jesus is like, yeah, you will. You actually will. And, uh, but look at this. He says, but to sit at my right or my left, it's actually not for me to grant. 
These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. So um, interesting insight into the Trinity here. I don't understand how this works, but Jesus says, uh, that's actually not my decision. That's the Father's decision. He's the one who decides that. So look what happens next. The Bible says, when the 10 heard about this, so remember there was the 10 other disciples, right? So James and John are here. When the 10 heard about this, notice their response. They were indignant with the two brothers. Indignant, that's a great word, isn't it? That is a strong word. It's like the strongest word for being mad. They were indignant. They were furious. They were filled with rage. That's what they were when they heard about it. Now, here's an interesting question. Why do you think they were so mad? You think the other 10, the 10 disciples were mad at James and John because James and John were just being so insensitive to Jesus? Do you think that's why they were mad? You think, the reason, you think the reason that they were so upset was because James and John were just, man, they were just acting so immature. Come on, guys, come on. Now, I'll tell you why I think they were mad. And uh, I actually think that there's great indication for this. But I, I think the reason that they were mad is honestly because they were jealous. They were upset that James and John beat them to the punch. They were mad that James and John called shotgun on the kingdom before they were able to get those seats, right? That's what it was. And I'll tell you why I think that's the case is because do you know what the number one argument the disciples had with each other was throughout the duration of Jesus' ministry? Who is going to be the greatest? They had that argument from the first day to the last day, the night before Jesus went to the cross. Do you know what they were arguing about? Who's the best of us? Who's gonna be the greatest? And so Jesus, watch this, Jesus sees this. He sees James and John. He sees the disciples are mad at each other. And so look what he does. The Bible says, then Jesus called them together. This is so cool. So Jesus basically says, come on, guys, emergency staff meeting. Everyone in here right now, everybody in here. If I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, if I'm gonna go to the cross and we're about to do this, he says, then we gotta get this right. We gotta get this right. This is a problem. And I believe this isn't just a James and John problem. I think this is a discipleship problem. I think this is a people problem. I think this is our problem. And I think Jesus in this passage is calling all of us into this meeting. He says, come here, come here, come here. And he looks inside of their hearts and this is what he says. He says, you guys know, you guys know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and that the high officials exercise authority over them. And what's that mean? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you guys, listen, you know how it works in the world. You know how it works among the Gentiles, which is among the nations. He says, you know how the world works. And, and, And they would have said, yeah, we know how the world works. And here's how the world works. Rulers and authorities take their position of greatness and they lord it over and exercise authority over those whom they have authority over. Now, interestingly, these two terms, lord it over and exercise authority, are related in the Greek language. What they literally mean, here's what it literally means, it means to downward dominate. That's what it means. It means to overlord. It means an abuse of power for the sake of one's own advancement. And so Jesus says, you know how it works in the world. People who have greatness, people who have great power, who have great position, he says they utilize that great power and that great position to dominate over others for their own, for their own flourishing and for their own sake. He says, you guys know how it works. And my guess is uh, that if Jesus was in this room, he would say to us, you guys know how it works. 
in your society, in your workplace, in your school system, in your neighborhood, you know, in your HOA, whatever it might, you know how it works. And he says, this is how it works. And we would all say, yeah, we know how it works. Because all of us know that this is the way that the world works. The way that the world operates is like this. This is what Jesus is pointing out. He says that in so many, way, so many different areas of life, it is a top-down mentality. It's top-down. And so everyone is trying to be king of the hill. Everyone is trying to get to the top. And those who have the greatest skills, those who have the greatest talents, those who have the greatest power, those who have the greatest position, those who have the greatest wealth, they sit on the top of the mountain and they utilize their great powers and resources for the flourishing of themselves. This is how it works. And everyone's trying to climb this. And basically in this model, and you guys know how, we all know how this works. Basically in this model of thinking, he says the way it works is that every person looks at their resources, looks at their privileges, looks at their position, and looks at their talents. And they try to leverage those things for the advancement of their own flourishing and their own freedom and their own needs and their own care. He says in this model, that's how it works. Everyone's thinking that way. See, Jesus looks at James and John, and what does he see in their heart? He sees that they're operating this way. Because what did James and John just do? Here's what they said. They said, Jesus, when you get in your kingdom, you're going to be up here. We know that. Like, you're going to be top seat. They said, but what about us? Can we get here? Like, can we be right here? And, and what did they do to try to get there? Well, notice what they did is they looked at their resources and privileges. They said, well, our mom is Jesus' aunt. So what if we get mom to ask? What if we leverage that connection? They look at their position. They were disciples themselves. They were disciples of Jesus, some of the closest disciples of Jesus. And they said, hey, we got that working for us. And they basically leveraged all of these things for what? To try to secure for themselves their own flourishing, their own freedom, their own needs, and their own care, to advance themselves above the others. And the other disciples were mad. Why? Because they beat them to it. They all wanted to be up here. See, and Jesus says, you know how it works. This is how it works. And I would just say, you know how this works. This is how it works. My guess is in your business that you work in. This is how it works. My guess is that, that, that in your school, that in our society, in, so many, in politics, we all know it. This is how this works. But look what Jesus says next. Jesus says, yeah, you all know how it works. But look at this next thing. He says to his disciples, not so with you. Jesus says, not you. If you are my follower, this is not the way you think. This is not the way you operate. To which I would say that if you are a follower of Jesus in this room today, and I know, by the way, not everyone in this room follows Jesus, but if you're a follower of Jesus, I think Jesus would look at you and he would say to you this morning, not you either, not you either. This is not the, this is not the way that we are to assess and pursue greatness. And Jesus goes on and look what he says. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great... By the way, side note, I think this is so important, so important. Jesus never condemns or rebukes our ambition for greatness. He never does. He simply redirects it and he redefines it. He says, if you wanna be great, if you wanna be great, whoever wants to be great among you, he says, you just have to take on the role of a servant and you need to take on the mentality, if you wanna be first, to be a slave. You have to be a slave. Now, this, this would have been so paradigm shifting for the disciples to hear this. Jesus just listed two of the, the two roles in society that were the lowest on the pyramid, the servant and the slave. The servant, that's actually a word that would be used of a person who would wait on tables. And the word slave, we all know what a slave is. A slave is somebody who is committed to and is consumed with the needs of another. That's what they are. And so Jesus says, if you wanna be great, 
We want to be great. He says, the way you're to think of it is different. Rather than trying to pursue power to lord it over, he says, instead, you are to take on the position of a servant and you're to take on the position of a slave. And as some of you might be thinking to yourself, what's Jesus saying here? Is Jesus saying that if I have like a high-ranking position, like maybe I'm a CEO in my company or maybe I'm in the highest income bracket or maybe I'm, you know, whatever, does that mean that Jesus is frowning upon that and he's saying that I actually need to take on a lower position? Is that what Jesus is saying? And let me just help you out. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not against point leadership. Jesus Christ himself was a point leader. He, he designated the disciples to be point leaders. Jesus is not anti-administration. He is not anti-organization. He's talking about our heart. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, you guys know how it works. It's all top-down in the world. It's all top-down. He says, but not so with you. And he takes this concept and he completely flips it on its head. He says, here's how it works in the kingdom. Here's how it works in the kingdom. That each person who serves me needs to look at their talents and their position and their privileges and their resources. And rather than asking the question, how can I leverage these things for my own care and my own needs and my own freedom and my own flourishing, they need to also ask the question, how can I leverage these things for the sake of others? How can I utilize my unique gifts and talents and positions and privileges and resources? How can I leverage the uniqueness of who God has created me to be for the flourishing and the care of those who are around me? And Jesus says, this, this is great in the eyes of God. I'll tell you what I love so much about this definition that Jesus gives, by the way. This definition of greatness is accessible to every single person in this room. You can be great for God. You can be greatly used by God, and you can be great for God. See, we, we tend to think that greatness, greatness is reserved for those who are extremely charismatic, for those who are unbelievably talented, for those who are great in their ability. We think that greatness is reserved for those who have great power or who have great wealth or great whatever. And in this definition, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Greatness, greatness is not reserved just for those who have a certain education level. Greatness is not based on your gift set, your talent level, your rank or your position or any of those type of things. You could be the CEO of your company, or you could be the person who's the lowest organizationally in your company, and you can still be great. You could be one of the greatest people in society as far as your influence is concerned, or you could be someone who's really a nobody in society, but according to Jesus, you can still be great. And why? Because the great ones are the ones who serve. The great ones are the ones who say, man, how do I use my talents and my position and my privileges and my resources, not just for self-advancement and not just for self-gain, but to leverage those things for the care, the needs, the freedom, and the flourishing of others. And I just want you to, I just want you to imagine this for real. Just imagine this for a minute. What would it look like for those of us who follow Jesus in this room? What would it look like if we took seriously Jesus' definition of greatness? What if we genuinely tried to pursue Jesus' Jesus's vision of greatness in our lives. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that might look like? So for example, at work, at your job, let's just talk about that for a minute. When you go into work tomorrow or whenever it is you go into work next, can you imagine what it would look like if your ambition, if your heart, if your, if, if your internal state was one in which you were committed to pursuing Jesus' vision of greatness? Can you imagine what that might change? 
in your work setting? What if when you went into work, your primary concern was this? You said, God, how can I today utilize my talents, the gifts you've given me? How can I utilize the unique position that you've put me in? How can I utilize my privileges and my resources? And how can I take those things and how can I serve the care, the needs, the freedom, and the flourishing of others. How can I do that? How can I take these things and how can I, how can instead of me trying to make sure that I'm, you know, that everything's fair and that I'm getting what I deserve and, and how can I take these things and rather than being so concerned with making sure that I get the most commission off of this deal, what if instead I said, you know what my big concern and my number one concern is how can I, how can I with these resources, how can I leverage them for the care, the needs, the freedom, flourishing of my clients? What if I said that? What if I said, how can I leverage these things for the care, the needs, the freedom and flourishing of my coworkers, of my boss, of my employees? Can you imagine, can you imagine what that might be like? Imagine for a minute what would change in your heart. Imagine for a moment what would change in the way that you viewed the people around you. If you imagine for a moment how free you would feel, how free you would feel from the need to be seen how free you would feel from the need to have to get ahead or to jockey or, or how free you'd feel from the envy that you would feel towards other people. Imagine that, just imagine that. Imagine how liberating this could be. If God, I, think, I think if you got a hold of this, I think you could be used greatly by God in your workplace. I think, first off, I think you'd be a better worker. You'd probably be a better worker. I think you'd stick out like a sore thumb. And I think that God could greatly use you. And I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, yeah, but dude, that, I mean, that sounds nice in church, but that's not how the real world works. And let me just say, I know that's not how the real world works, and Jesus knows that too. But he looks at his disciples and he says, not so with you. And part of what it means to follow Jesus means that we follow him in his definition of greatness. Your boss, your coworkers, your employees, they may never reciprocate this, but that's not your concern. Your concern is to say, God, how can I use the things you've given me to serve other people? And you know what? I'm just gonna trust you. I'm gonna trust you. If you're gonna promote me, I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna trust you. With that. Can you imagine how freeing that would be? Can you imagine this? Imagine what it would look like if you pursued this vision of greatness in your marriage, for those of you who are married. Imagine if you took this and you said, you know what? I'm gonna be a great husband. I'm going to be a great wife as God defines it. Can you imagine what it would look like if instead of demanding that your spouse meets your needs and cares for all of your desires, what if instead you said, you know what my primary concern is gonna be? My, pr my primary concern is in the eyes of God is I'm gonna pursue greatness. And I'm gonna ask, how can I utilize my talents, my gifts, my position, my privileges, my resources for the flourishing, the freedom, the needs, and the care of my spouse? What if you did that? Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, but you don't understand. You don't know my marriage. My husband, my husband's a turd. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but you're like, he liked that. Right. But you're like, what, 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 what do I do in that situation? Listen, I'm not, I'm not arguing that he's not. I, I'm just saying I'm just saying that's not, you can't control somebody else, but you know, you know who you are responsible for. You're responsible for you following Jesus. And I'm just telling you, God can use that. Can you, can you imagine if you took the first step in serving, can you imagine how that might melt the cold ice in a marriage that's grown cold? Can you imagine what that could do? Imagine that. And I just want you, in everything, if you're a high school student, you're a middle school student, imagine if you took this definition into your school onto the sports field. If you said, you know what, as a follower of Jesus, I'm gonna pursue greatness this way. I'm gonna leverage the best of me 
for those who are around me. I'm gonna do it in those ways. Grace Church, Medina East Campus, for those of you who are part, who call this place home, can you imagine what it would look like if in our church, if we were committed to pursuing this vision of greatness with each other? Can you imagine that? Imagine a church where those who are part of it said, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna look at our talents because we believe that everyone in our church is uniquely gifted and talented by God. And I'm gonna use my position and my privileges and my resources and I'm gonna leverage those things, not just for my own sake, but for the spiritual care, the spiritual needs, the spiritual freedom and the spiritual flourishing of others. Can you imagine that? Let me just say something. If you're in your 20s, if you're a young adult in this room, Can I just tell you something? One of the most valuable resources that you have that you might not know you have is you have youth, you have energy, and you have time. And some of you are saying, I don't have time. Yes, you do. I'm just telling you, if you have time to take a nap, you got time, all right? You got time. If you have time to binge watch Netflix, you got time. All right, you have time. But, but let me just tell you something. If you're, if you're a young adult, you're in your 20s, do you know who thinks you are a superhero? Do you know who thinks you're a superhero? High school students, middle school students, and elementary school students. They think you're awesome. And is it because you're awesome? No. No. I mean, you might be. Some of you might. I mean, some of you are really awesome. But even if you're not, they think you're awesome. And do you know why? Because you're young. And I'm just telling you, that's got a shelf life. Because you're going to turn 30 and your metabolism is going to stop. And people are going to think you're old and they're not going to care what you have to say anymore. And I'm just saying, what if, what if you looked at that and you said, hey, hey, what if I took that influence that God has given me? And what if I leveraged it for the flourishing and the care and the spiritual needs of someone else? What if you got plugged into serving with our young adults or with, with our students? Or what if you did that? How awesome. How great could that be? If you're a high school student, you know who thinks you're awesome? Middle school students, they think you're the best thing ever. What if you utilize that? If you're, if you're in this room and you're married, or if you have kids, or if you've raised your kids, if, you, if you've been married for a long time, if you've been divorced and you've been remarried, do you know what you have that nobody else has? Do you know what you have? Experience. You have wisdom. And some of you are like, I don't have wisdom, man. We did everything wrong. Yeah, but you got, you got it one way or the other. You got wisdom. And I'm just saying, what if you said, rather than sitting on that, what if I leveraged that for the spiritual care needs and freedom and flourishing of another? What would that look like? What would that look like? We believe that everyone in our church is uniquely gifted and resourced and is uniquely made by God to be used in serving the needs of others. This is why, by the way, things like the Discovery Pathway exist. I kind of talked about this before. Discovery Pathway is designed to help you discover kind of what are your gifts and, and what is the unique shape that God has given you and how can you utilize those things to serve? I'm just saying, there's a lot of different ways you go with this. We could talk about your workplace. We could talk about your marriage. We could talk about it at our church. We could talk about in our community. We could talk about in your neighborhood. What if we took seriously, took seriously this ambition for Jesus's definition of greatness? I love, by the way, I love how Jesus ends. This is how he ends his conversation with the disciples. I think this right here is the key. Jesus says this. He says, you should serve just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This right here is the whole reason why those of us who follow Jesus choose serving as greatness. This is the motivation for it. I want you to notice in this passage, I don't know if you noticed this, what Jesus didn't say is Jesus didn't say serving is the way to greatness. It's not what he said. Jesus didn't say, if you serve, 
then God will promote you to be CEO of your company. He didn't say, if you serve, then you'll be great. No, 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 this is what he said. If you serve, that's great. That is greatness. And why is it great? Because Jesus is great. And because Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. Think about this. Jesus, Jesus, he had incredible position. He sat at the right hand of the Father. Jesus had incredible resources. All the luxuries of heaven were his. Everything was made by him, for him, and through him, is what Colossians says. Jesus has unbelievable gifts, all the gifts. And what did he do with all of that? Here's what he did. He laid it all down, and he leveraged it for our flourishing, for our care, for our needs, for our freedom. I think it's only when you're gripped by the servanthood of Jesus that you are enabled and free to serve others. It's how we do it. So let me just say this. If you're a follower of Jesus and serving in any capacity is not, is not part of your portfolio, you can never look like Jesus. You just can't. His life was marked by servanthood. And let me just say that if you're a follower of Jesus and you're, and you're looking at the Christian life and it doesn't make sense to you and it's frustrating and it feels, and it just, you're just like, I feel confused and I feel like I don't understand. Could it be that maybe what's missing is this, is this, is serving because it's a key part of what it truly means to follow Jesus. And it's accessible to every single one of us. That's the band to come up. And, and as they do, I thought I'd close with a story that I thought was really relevant. So, so back in 1934, there was a big tent revival. Do you guys, uh, do you guys ever hear of big tent revivals before? It used to be a popular thing a long time ago. They would, they would, they would set up these tents and they would uh, go around the country and they would do music and they would have a, uh, an evangelist or a preacher get up and, and basically tell people about Jesus. And it was a way that, that people would get connected to God. So anyway, back in 1934, there was this big tent revival that was traveling around and they were in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. And while they were there in Charlotte, North Carolina, there was these two 14-year-old boys that were walking past it. And they saw all of the music and they heard, you know, they heard the music and they saw all of the energy around it. And they said, well, let's go check it out. Let's go see what's going on. So these two 14-year-old boys walked in and they, they saw the music was going on and they, they saw a bunch of energy that was happening. They said, you know, let's stick around. Let's see, let's see, let's see what this is all about. And so they started to look for a seat. But as they looked around, they saw the place was just packed. There wasn't one place to sit. And so they started to walk away, started to leave. But uh, there was a man in the front who was sitting in the front, was an usher, and he saw these boys walking away, and he ran after them. And he went, and he said, hey, where are you guys going? They said, well, we can't find a seat. He said, no, 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 I'll find you a seat. And he, he brought them back in. He gave up his seat. He had them sit right there in the front. He went, he found another chair. He set it up. He had these two 14-year-old boys sit right there in the front. And that day, at this big tent revival, there was a preacher, a relatively unknown preacher by the, guy, uh, the name of a guy by, by the name of Mordecai Ham. So Morty Ham, that's actually what his name was. And this is a guy who uh, wasn't the most eloquent of teachers or preachers. He had never written a book. He had never been to the White House. He never traveled around the world. But he got up, and to the best of his ability, he presented the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these two 14-year-old boys responded and gave their life to Jesus that day. And do you know who those two 14-year-old boys were? The first one was Billy Graham. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him before. Uh, when, when I was, we talked about the, that second question of who's someone that is great, like a, someone used greatly by God. He's the name I wrote down. Billy Graham preached to more people than anyone else in the history of humanity. 
he um, connected over a million people to Jesus through his ministry. The other guy uh, was a guy by the name of Grady Wilson. Grady Wilson was the organizational mastermind behind those evangelistic campaigns. And let me just tell you that all of history changed, all of history changed because of someone who most of us have never heard his name. And listen, I'm not talking about Mordecai Ham. I'm talking about that usher who decided to get up and help those boys find a seat. Now, let me just tell you something. What is it that made Billy Graham so great? What is it that made Billy Graham great in the eyes of God? And I'll tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't the multitudes of masses that came to, her, to hear him. It wasn't his incredible giftedness or skills or talents, which he was incredibly gifted and skilled and talented. It wasn't his incredible connections to the presidents of the United States that he had. You know what it was that made Billy Graham great in the eyes of the God? It's the same thing that made that usher great in the eyes of the Lord. It was a willingness to serve. It was a willingness to say, I am going to give up my place for you. And I am going to leverage my position so that you will flourish. So here's what I'm telling you. You don't have to be the most talented person in the world. You don't have to have the most position or power or whatever. You can be great for God if you take on the position of a servant. Will you embrace that picture of greatness that Jesus presents to us? Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I just wanna say thank you that you are great and uh, that you've demonstrated for us what true greatness looks like. Jesus, you deliberately chose to give your life, to give you resources, to give of yourself for the sake of our freedom and our flourishing. And God, we're just eternally grateful for it. And I pray that when we look at the example of what you've done for us, that we would just want to do the same. I pray that those of us who follow you, that we would live lives marked by servanthood that we would wanna live lives that are, that are marked by this picture of greatness. Help us to pursue it. We know it's paradoxical. We know it's the opposite of the way that the world we live, we, we, we live in works. But Jesus, you said to your disciples, not so with you. And we are to redefine what it looks like to pursue greatness in our lives. So God, give us a vision for what that might look like and empower us to do it. We pray these things in Jesus' name.